grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Growing up as a kid and a teenager, I I was a very self-conscious kid. Like I always felt like I didn't measure up to my peers. I was the skinniest and the shortest kid in my grade for the longest time. I wasn't the most athletic. I was never the cool kid with a nice car or clothes. At the end of the day, like I was keenly aware of all my flaws and deficiencies. And to be honest, I struggled with that sometimes. But here's what it took me a long time to figure out. Everyone seems to struggle with that sometimes. No matter how cool or how put together or how well-liked someone may seem, we all struggle with the feeling of not measuring up. This morning, if I asked you to make a list of your five best qualities, I'm willing you'd have, uh, to bet you'd have a hard time making that list. But if I asked you to make a list of your five worst qualities, that would come a lot easier, wouldn't it? This seems to be a universal quality where we, we beat ourselves up and we hold ourselves to this, this, these impossible standards. And this often translates to our spiritual lives. We look at other Christians, and it seems like everyone else has it all together but me. Oh, they don't have the baggage I do from my past. They don't still sin and mess up like I do. Their kids are so well-behaved, and their marriage is so perfect. I bet they wake up every morning at 5 a.m. to have their devotions. Every day. I'm just a second-class Christian. I am completely ordinary, and God would never use someone like me to make a difference. Why do we do that to ourselves? Here's why. Because we spend more time looking inward than looking upward. This is why low self-esteem and low self-worth can actually be a pride problem. Because we spend all our time looking at ourselves instead of looking at God. Here's what we see from the Bible. We see that God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He's not looking for the smartest or the coolest or the best put together. He's simply looking for the one who will trust him and obey. And that's what I want to show you today as we continue walking through the book of Exodus. Exodus is a story. It's a true story about God's great rescue of his people. So far, a lot of what we've covered is the setup to this great story. We've seen that tension is really building as we see the big problem in the story. What is the big problem? was that God's people, the people who came from Abraham, who God made a covenant with, those descendants have become a great nation just as God promised. But it was because of their greatness that they became slaves in Egypt. Uh, For 400 years, they endured harsh treatment under the rule of Egypt's king known as Pharaoh. And that harsh treatment reached an all-time high as Pharaoh commanded his people to take any baby boy born to the Israelites and throw him in the Nile River. Except last week, we saw that God used that very situation to introduce a special chosen child. A child born to God's people, yet who was raised in the royal Egyptian household. A child by the name of Moses. Moses, by all accounts, had a great and privileged life. Till one day, he got angry over the treatment of his people and murdered an Egyptian man. He ended up fleeing for his life into the wilderness and then settled down as an anonymous shepherd with a new family. And we closed last week with a major turning point in the story. We saw that God said, enough is enough. He saw the plight of his people. He remembered his covenant with them. And now he's going to act. 
Today, we will see the beginning of God's great rescue plan of his people, and we will see the moment that the life of Moses was changed forever. So let's walk through our passage, and let's apply it to our own lives today. Look with me at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. If you grew up in church, this is likely a familiar story to you. It's the famous call of Moses. And we know that from this moment on, Moses would go on to do some incredible things. But let's just pause here and consider where Moses is at this moment. We know from Acts chapter 7 that Moses was 40 years old when he fled from Egypt to Midian. And we also know that now another 40 years has passed with Moses as a shepherd. So if you can do math better than me, I had to really think about this, that would put Moses now at about 80 years old. Does that sound right? Okay, good. I was nervous. Long gone are the days where Moses lived in royalty. He spent the last four decades of his life herding sheep and goats out in the wilderness, caring for his wife and kids and living a seemingly ordinary life. So, so this, is not the Moses, this is not Moses, the great leader of God's people. This is not Moses on the run, living in difficulty and fear. This is just anonymous, regular guy, Moses. And it's to this ordinary goat herder who was on the job, doing what he did every single day out in the wilderness, that God chose to speak in a miraculous way. We see here that Moses was with his herd in a particular place, Mount Horeb, which we'll see later is also called Mount Sinai, same place, also known as the mountain of God. And it's at this place that Moses comes upon something bizarre. He sees a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. In other words, it's just burning. And make a note of this image of fire. It's another sign that's important throughout the book of Exodus. It's a sign that marks the presence of God. And that's what we see. It says that the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush. Now, the angel of the Lord is a common figure we see in the Old Testament and is often closely identified with God himself. This has led some to consider whether this angel of the Lord is some special type of, of manifestation of God or if he's simply one of his chief messengers. Uh, we don't know exactly, but regardless, the text tells us that God is the one who speaks out of the bush to call Moses. Can you imagine what was going through his mind here? I mean, bush burning, not being consumed, a voice coming out of it. Did, did he know this was God? What did he think was, you put yourself in this position. It's crazy. And Moses learned more as God told him to take off his sandals. God wanted Moses to see that this is no ordinary encounter, but this seemingly ordinary piece of dirt and mountain had become a holy, sacred place where God himself was appearing. And out of respect and reverence, he needed to remove his shoes. 
God then identified himself further. He says, Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Here again, we're reaching back to Genesis. Exodus, remember, is not a story on its own, but it's a continuation of what God has been doing for his people. Moses, even though he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, he was a descendant of Abraham. He was one of God's people. He was a part of God's great promises. So God is saying to him, Moses, I am your God. I'm the one you heard about as a child, and I'm still here. Moses was afraid. He hid his face. And then God continued to call Moses. Look at Exodus 3, verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with, flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Here's the situation, God said. Send my people, they're suffering in Egypt, and I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to take them to a better land, which we know is called the promised land, the land of Canaan. And God says, here's how I'm going to do it. Here's my great plan. You ready? I'm going to send you. Yes, you, Mr. Goat Herder, you are the one who will go to Pharaoh and bring my people out. Can you imagine the shock and fear that Moses experienced in this moment? I think any of us here would have been a little rattled by that. So here's what we see in the rest of the passage. That's how Moses responds. He actually offers up five excuses to God on why he is the wrong guy for the job. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Here's the first excuse Moses gives. He says, God, who am I? Who am I? I'm just a goat herder. I've been out here for 40 years, and you want me to walk up to the most powerful man in the world and just ask him to let his very valuable slaves go for nothing? (laughs) You got the wrong guy, God. Notice how God responds. God doesn't say, Moses, look, man, you're a good guy. You're strong. You're ready for this. I believe in you. You just need to believe in yourself. (laughs) He doesn't say anything at all about Moses. Instead, God turns Moses to himself. He says, Moses, I will be with you. Moses needed to know that the reason God was calling him to this task was not because of him and any specialness he held, but it was because of God and his presence going with him. But as I said, Moses has a few more questions, I mean excuses. Look at verses 13 to 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
If the first excuse by Moses was, who am I? The second excuse is, God, who are you? Moses had a concern that if he went to the Israelite people and they asked for God's name, that he wouldn't know what to say. And there's kind of two questions that come to my mind here. First off, did Moses not know God's name? Had he forgotten it all these years away? Maybe he didn't learn much about God growing up in Pharaoh's household. For whatever reason, it seems that Moses knew of God, but he didn't know him personally. And second off, the other question I thought is, why would the Israelite people ask Moses for God's name? Was this like a secret code to show he's legit? Let's remember that in the Hebrew culture, names carried great significance. We've already seen this with the name of Moses. A name told you a lot about who who a person was. So for the Israelites to ask Moses God's name meant that they wanted to confirm that Moses had indeed met with the Lord and knew not just him, but him personally. The Egyptian culture, they were surrounded by people who worshiped many gods with many different names. So for Moses to confirm the one true God's name was confirmation to them that Moses was indeed his representative. God answered this objection by Moses with some of the most significant verses in all of Exodus. Man, there is so much that we could dig into here. We don't have time. Let's just look briefly at God's response. Moses says to God, God, what's your name? And he responds first. He says, I am who I am. Now, to our our modern English ears, it comes across a bit strange. What does that even mean? I am who I am? One of the things we miss in the original Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in is a bit of play of words going on here. All throughout this conversation with God, Moses has been using that first-person pronoun, I Who am I? How can I do this? I, 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 me, 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 me. And God responds, no, Moses, I am. I am who I am. That could also be translated, I will be who I will be. It's a title and a description of who God is, but but what does it mean? Honestly, it's as simple and yet as complex as we could imagine. This title at its essence speaks of what? really smart theologians call God's aseity. God's aseity is his self-existence and self-sufficiency. This means God exists completely from himself. He is a being that does not depend on anything or anyone else for his existence. Now, think about this. We're not that way. As humans, we are dependent beings. We are dependent on oxygen and sleep and food and, for me, coffee. (laughs) And most of all, we are dependent on God. But God is not that way. God is not a dependent being. He was not created. It's one of the first questions kids ask is, if God made everything, who made God? Where did he come from? The answer is nowhere and no one. No one created God. He was not created. He cannot be destroyed. He has always existed, and he always will for all eternity. This means that God does not need us to fulfill anything in him. He actually doesn't need us at all, which is a sobering thought. But he has all he needs in and of himself. He is perfect and complete in every way. And anything that exists comes from him, was made by him, and sits under his absolute authority. He is who he is. He will be who he will be. He is the I am. That's the God who revealed himself to Moses. And he said, Moses, tell my people, I am has sent me to you. 
This title builds up to God's revelation of his personal name in verse 15. Look there with me, verse 15. Look at your Bible. And I want you to find there the word Lord. Find the word Lord. Now, you should notice in your Bible that the word Lord is spelled with all capital letters. That's because this word does not exactly mean Lord as we commonly use it in English. It's a different kind of saying, Lord. In Hebrew, this is the name of God. It was originally just four letters, which in English would be the letters Y-H-W-H. The vowels were added later so that it could be pronounced Yahweh. That name, Yahweh, Hebrew, is God's personal name. While he has many titles in Scripture, Yahweh is like saying Micah. It's very personal. Well, if that's the case, then why doesn't our English Bible just say so? Well, for the Jewish people who originally received these books of the Bible, they would not speak that name out loud. It was so reverent and holy to them that they dared not utter it unless they accidentally took it in vain. Instead, when they spoke God's name or read their Hebrew Bible out loud, they used the title Adonai, which in English is translated Lord. And our English versions continue this practice till today. Also because we don't know exactly how to say the name Yahweh, the vows were added later. But we can know, you can know, when you see the word LORD in your Bible in all capital letters, that's God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. And yes, it is okay for us to say it today. We'll talk later about taking God's name in vain and what that means. But God's point here is not just to give Moses a name or some kind of cool trivia to tell the Israelites. It's to reveal himself in a personal way. We have a personal God. And if Moses is going to accomplish this great calling on his life, he needs to know who the one who's calling him and empowering him. And God confirms this to him in the most meaningful way possible with his personal name. The rest of chapter 3, God continued to explain to Moses everything that would happen. He said, you're going to gather the elders of Israel. You're going to go to Pharaoh. He even tells Moses it's going to be difficult. Pharaoh's not going to want to let the people go, but God will take care of that. Eventually, they will get out. They will be released, and you will take them to the promised land. But Moses still has a few more concerns. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or or listen to my voice, for they'll say the Lord did not appear to you. Here's his third excuse. He says they won't believe me. They're going to think I'm lying and making this all up. So here's how God deals with this concern. Look at verses 2 through 9. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. (laughs) One of the most accurate verses in the Bible. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Are you crazy? That's not in there. So he put out his hand. He did it. He put out his hand. He caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. 
If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God gives Moses three signs to use to prove that he comes with the legit power of God. Yet, even after seeing these miracles for himself, there's a snake and how it's a staff. Here's how he responded, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Here's the fourth excuse by Moses. He says, I'm not good at talking. Literally, he says, I am heavy of mouth and tongue. We don't know exactly what he meant by that, but the most common view is that Moses had some kind of stutter or speech issue. And you can imagine why this would have been a concern to Moses. He was being asked to go stand and speak before the most powerful man in the known world. He was also being asked to speak to thousands of God's people as the voice of God. That would have been tough with his challenge. So here's how God addressed this concern, verses 11 through 12. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God reminded Moses that he is the great I am, meaning he is sovereign over all things, including his speech. He's in control and he will use him despite his human limitations. He made him that way. One more time, Moses tries his best to get out of this. Verse 13, he says, but he, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. There's the fifth and last excuse. He says, God, send anyone but me. And this time, God has had it. Look at verses 14 to 17. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. And behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God gets a little angry, so he makes one last concession. He says, Moses, you got a brother named Aaron, and Aaron will be your mouthpiece. He can speak well, okay? So God will speak to Moses, Moses will speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to the people, and that is it. The matter is settled. And we read of no more objections, no more excuses. Apparently, when Moses saw that God's patience had run out, he knew he had nothing left to do but to go. And Moses, the ordinary goat herder, goes on to do some of the most extraordinary things in the Bible and in the history of the world. So what does this mean for us today? While you and I may not be called out of a burning bush to deliver an entire nation out of slavery, God is still calling us on his mission. And as I said earlier, we often feel like Moses did. We feel ordinary. And we may even wonder how God could ever use someone like us. But as we've seen, God delights in using ordinary people to do his extraordinary will. So let me close by showing you two ways that we see that in this passage. First off, we see that number one, when we drift, God pursues. 
Think again about where Moses is in this passage. He's not running from God or trying to ignore God that we're aware of. It's been 40 years since he left Egypt. At this point, he has a home with a wife and a kids. He has this simple life as a goat herder. We, we have no indication that life's going great or that it's going terribly. That's what I mean when I say we drift. So many of us get to this point in our lives when we're just going through the motions. We've got our small square, and we stay right there inside of it. We say in our minds, well, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. I'm just a dad. I'm just a mom. I'm just a retiree. I'm just an engineer. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a kid. I'm just a teacher. And we close ourselves off to how God may want to use us. But here's what we see in the life of Moses and throughout all of the Bible. God has chosen of all the ways he could accomplish his great purposes, he's chosen to use his people. Because when we drift, God pursues us. Listen, I I want you to understand this this morning. Listen to me. God is after you. He's pursuing you in the best way possible. He did not put you on this planet, and he is not daily sustaining you by his grace so that you can just coast through life and go through the motions. God wants to do something extraordinary in your life. And please know, I'm not talking about making you rich or successful or well-known. I'm talking about the extraordinary call of reaching people for Jesus. I resisted that call for much of my early life. I had my own plans, my own dreams. I had this whole picture of how I thought I wanted my life to be. And God saw fit to crush those dreams and to do something so much better than I could have ever imagined. God chased me down. He brought me to the end of myself, and he showed me the joy of being used by him for his purposes. The reason you're hearing this today is because he wants to do the same thing in your life. You would not be here otherwise. We drift. God pursues. Here's the second last takeaway from this passage. Number two, when we doubt God prepares. Like Moses, I don't know about you, but I am an expert at excuse making. I got a lot of excuses. We all do. We say things like, I'm not smart enough. I'm too shy. I'm not a people person. I'm too poor. I've got too much baggage from my past. I'm too busy. I don't know where to start. I just can't be the person God wants me to be. I'll never be able to do something great for God. But just like Moses, our excuses, our doubts, our concerns don't change God's plans for us. God overcomes our excuses, and he prepares us to do his will. Listen, if you don't feel prepared to reach people for Christ, to make a difference in your neighborhood or your workplace or your family, if you don't feel like you're good enough or prepared enough, welcome to the club. Everyone God used in the Bible was the same way. They were all ordinary people used to do extraordinary things. And what's even better than that? Here's the amazing thing we learn in Scripture. God doesn't just use us in spite of our weaknesses and doubts. Like he doesn't say, okay, Micah's pretty messed up, but you know, it's kind of the best I got to work with right now. I'll figure out how to make this work. No, God uses us because of our weaknesses. See, it's when God uses the weak to do his will that his power's on display. And we are left to humbly trust in him. It's when God uses the flawed, imperfect, broken person that he gets the greatest glory. Because there's no other way it would have happened. 
Paul made this very point in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said, but God said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power is made perfect in weakness. This is the way God operates. He delights in using ordinary, everyday, average, imperfect, broken, sinful, doubting, struggling people like me to do his extraordinary will. So let me ask you this morning. What big thing might God be calling you to do for him? What is that scary thing that Maybe you feel like God's wanted you to do, but you got a million excuses for it. Could God be calling someone here today to become a pastor or missionary or leader in his church? Could he be calling you to help us fulfill our vision, to plant a church, to move to a new place for the sake of the gospel among unreached people? Could he be calling you to get serious about reaching your neighbors or coworkers? Could he be calling you to focus on discipling your children, your grandchildren? Could he be calling you to look into foster care or adoption ministry or prison ministry? Look, whatever it is, I want you to know. It is okay if you feel ordinary. It is okay if you feel less than. It is okay if you feel ill-equipped. Most of us in this room, by the world's standards, will live and die with ordinary lives. But God can use us to have an impact that goes on for eternity. In fact, that's his preference. Friends, there's no burning bush today. But I want you to know that nonetheless, God is calling you. He wants to know you through his son, Jesus. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he wants to use you to impact others far beyond you could ever imagine. All you have to do is say, here I am. And trust him and obey. That's it. Will you do that today? Let's bow our heads and pray.